Security used to be simple. I mean, you had a desktop computer, right? And it connected to a phone line and later to the internet. You got a firewall, you got anti-malware, and you were golden. You were doing security, right? Then we started to get mobile devices that did more than just phone calls. Then lots and lots of other mobile devices that otherwise depended on the internet. That's when things got really, really weird. For example, we've already seen how zombie devices out in the field could be used to launch denial-of-service attacks in a botnet. Or the thousands of Tesla car owners that got locked out because their keyless entry system didn't connect to an API server. Or the crew's driverless automated vehicles stopping on the streets of San Francisco because of a communications failure. Having code, having communications on millions, if not billions, of devices worldwide Well, it's becoming a bigger problem. For example, as we'll hear at the end of this podcast, you might not want to throw out that smart home connected light bulb, at least not without first resetting it to the factory default settings. Yeah, things have gotten weird. This then is the story of a device security framework, one that could possibly harness updates and provide all of us with more security in the devices we find in our lives. I'm Robert Famosi. This is Error Code. I'm Window Snyder, the CEO and founder of Thistle Technologies. Perhaps you've heard of Window. She was Director of Security Architecture at At Stake. She then worked at Microsoft in their Security Engineering and Communications Group, where she created the Blue Hat Microsoft Hacker Conference. She then worked for Mozilla, makers of Firefox, and Apple. She then became Chief Security Officer for Fastly, then worked at Intel, before moving over to Square. In 2021, she created her own company, Thistle Technologies, to handle smart devices. We're building security tools, libraries, and backend services to allow device manufacturers to quickly get to a modern security architecture. Prior to the show, Window and I discussed the scope of our conversation and agreed we were going to be discussing devices in general, so as to be inclusive of commercial and industrial or enterprise, and to include IoT and OT. A lot of devices have um, stripped down versions of operating systems or very minimal operating systems. Sometimes you don't see a lot of separation of privilege or even separation between code and data, which uh, leads to the kinds of problems that we saw in general purpose operating systems decades ago. Um, So at a time where you would see, let's say, you could execute code right off the stack, (laughs) you could execute, um, you could could compromise a, a, a computer with a single vulnerability that was accessible from the network and then have complete access to everything that the system has access to with with very little in the way of mitigation. And operating systems, as you know, well, general purpose operating systems have layer upon layer upon layer of security mitigation in place to make it more and more difficult for any one vulnerability to compromise the entire system. But devices have a lot less of that in place. And I wouldn't say that's universally the case. There, there are folks who've made um, significant efforts to, to, to do this work, but it's definitely applied inconsistently. We definitely have this kind of mixed environment where you've got some devices with a fairly robust 
security architecture and some devices with hardly any work at all. And then you've got devices that are that are actually within the device themselves mixed together. Windows touched upon an interesting point. A mobile phone has its own operating system, but then it's also got individual dedicated chips, like a radio chip, components that are contributing to and making your mobile device more complex. Let's take a phone with a very robust operating system, um, but then also has a, uh, a, a radio chip, maybe your Wi-Fi or your Bluetooth, um, or um, that would have firmware on it that doesn't have this kind of um, capability. And so the, the opportunity for the attacker is always going to be that there are these low-level components that have access to the device that don't have the same kind of uh, protections that you see at the operating system level, which of course makes sense. These are very resource limited uh, processors and there's, there's a, a limit to what you can do, but there's more that we can do. So um, we, uh, we, we really need to start paying attention to that. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a growing problem because these devices grow in complexity and then every device, every, every object, it seems at this point has uh, processors and memory and, radios and they're they're connected to networks and uh the the problem space is growing but the security investment isn't not at the same scale that it needs to be in some ways i consider the phone to be kind of a success story that unlike a laptop you don't need a firewall and you don't need antivirus running you don't need to have the tools that you would have seen on a network server long ago mobile phones don't necessarily have to have those because well the attack surface, for whatever reason, has changed. Our mobile phones, for whatever reason, tend to be more resilient. And I'm wondering if we could see that type of revolution happening with the devices that we're talking about today. I think it's possible. Um, but I think the, the phones are kind of a, a special story because, first of all, I would say that degree of security um, resilience was not evenly applied across the across the mobile phone um, story. And one of the, the things that was let's say most interesting and true about how viruses and malware get on your system for laptops was that overwhelmingly uh, users were installing it themselves. So, you know, I don't know if you remember those, those, uh, those, you know, like, you know, your, your PC is already compromised, download this thing and we'll, we'll scan your, your PC today. Um, like people were downloading and installing, you know, all, all kinds of stuff from everywhere. Uh, and you know what, honestly, they should be able to do that without fear, but like, this was the case that they, they were, you know, downloading, installing stuff that would, uh, have viruses on it or malware or uh, lead to compromise in one way or another, or just, you know, you know, here's some functional software that legitimately comes from the vendor that you think it does. And also it's just hugely vulnerable. And um, eventually the attacker is going to leverage this and uh, use it to compromise your device. And this complexity is starting to spill out into our lives as manufacturers decide to put Zigbee or Bluetooth low energy or MQTT into any device now and call it smart. Here's where the devices are being retrofitted with extra chips and things not architected with security in mind. Yeah, I mean, I'm not even sure you can buy a dumb TV anymore. You just use it as a display for some other device that's more robust, but like they all want to attach to the network. They all have a lot of uh, value-added features that require network access. And there's not the same degree of investment to protect all that capability and all that attack surface. This is a good point. Just because you've got a protocol or a chip that can handle a certain type of communications doesn't mean it fits the security architecture of the new device that you were putting it into. You can take a technology protocol or an implementation that was designed to be used under a certain set of security expectations 
or um, even performance or reliability expectations, and you apply it to a new environment, a new technology, a new implement, a, a new environment, and uh, it, the security expectations or requirements um, don't come along for the ride. And so uh, if you don't do work to evaluate whether or not the implementation is sufficient for your security requirements, then you're very often going to find yourself disappointed later when someone else exposes it to you. Part of this, I think, comes from the continued reuse of older protocols, some that weren't really meant or designed for their current use. Yeah, I'm looking at you, MQTT. It's definitely widely in use, but honestly, this happens. I mean, like, I've been in security for a long time, and so have you, right? That this is this is a problem that we see happen over and over again uh, in lots of different ways. That uh, you take a protocol or a um, implementation that's designed to be used. Um, one of my favorites actually is SCSI, like the SCSI, like between um, the interface between like used to be your hard drive, right? And then someone decided to take that and make it iSCSI and that's deployed, deployed over networks for network accessible drives. Like what a fantastic idea, except <laughs> the kind of the, the kind of resilience that you'd expect to see in a protocol that's designed for network use is was, was not in place. So like that, that was a really old example, but like, honestly, it, it keeps happening. And, you know, early Nokia phones, they had a lot of viruses and malware. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen today. It's just much less of a story than I expected it to be. The way we saw PCs evolve and the explosion of viruses and malware in the early 2000s. It's different here is that some devices, let's take, take iOS, for example, if you're if the software on your device comes from an, a known location, right, like the App Store, then there is an opportunity there uh, to to create an environment where there might be a degree of inspection that goes into those. Or even if there's no inspection, there might be an opportunity for when it's identified, it could be removed and no longer available to other devices. There's there's a, it's, it's really a different model, right, um, on iOS uh, in terms of um, how how viruses and, and, and malware got on PC. So it, we're not really comparing apples to apples. And on OS OS 10 or Mac OS, we were uh, people were downloading software from everywhere. But today, mostly the the best place to get software for your Mac is from the App Store. But even if you download it from other places, if it's not signed with the developer ID certificate, then the operating system doesn't recognize it and it doesn't execute. And you actually have to go through pretty serious contortions before before it will execute on your system. Um, that is not like a click-through because of course the person's trying to get something done. They want to get, get it, uh, to execute on their device. Um, so of course a click-through would enable that software to be almost as successful, um, as, you know, throwing up a warning is insufficient, right? So, so those strategies have, have changed over time, um, on some platforms. So that's why you've seen, let's say maybe a different story on, on, on mobile phones. It's, it's not the only reason there that's, that's a pretty significant part of it that uh, if the large specter was people were installing malware themselves, then here's a pretty significant uh, road bump to, to, uh, to allowing those, those, uh, those systems to be compromised. And we're already seeing some examples of exploitations in devices today. I'm thinking specifically of the Mirai botnet, which was comprised of surveillance devices that had a white label chip inside that was used over and over in a variety of different brands so that it got enlisted into a botnet composed of thousands of these devices worldwide. Yeah, I mean, it's really common now. The device, of course, device manufacturers are, are, are taking off the shelf components and then recompiling them to something new. And uh, sometimes those new devices have security requirements that those device components 
uh, were not designed for. So like, for example, you might take a gyroscope off the shelf and some of these new satellite startup companies might uh, incorporate a gyroscope off the shelf that wasn't necessarily designed to be deployed uh, in a satellite and now have the same security requirements that a satellite might have. So those those components or those technology modules or whatever we're talking about they need to be evaluated for the new security context because they are not necessarily uh, built with those in mind. And some, sometimes they are, but very often they're not. And if you're moving from, let's say, something that's a general purpose implementation to something that has high security requirements, you absolutely need to do that work for all the different components you incorporate, whether that's like a technology, like a hardware component, or whether it's it's a library that you're incorporating from, you know, maybe it's widely in use and it's popular and, you know, a compression library, for example, right? But you need to consider what it means for the, the security context for the device that you're building. So we're talking about systems on a chip. They're limited in resources in some cases, and they max out the resources just running the firmware or the code that they're supposed to run. So how could they possibly be updated? And in some cases, how can they even be secured? Well, going back for devices that are highly constrained that were built to, uh, for, for which the software is at the limits of what the hardware can do, like that's that's a very difficult problem. But we are constantly building new stuff, right? And as we uh, build new stuff, we need to, let's say, decide that a reliable update mechanism is a requirement. And if that's the case, then maybe what is required for this device to deliver on the reliability requirement is that it requires failover for updates so that a a problem with an update doesn't mean that that device is completely bricked, right? Like for a for a phone, that might mean it has to come back to the mobile store. And for a TV, it might require a technician to actually visit the house. And for a car, it has to come back to the dealership. And for a satellite, it's just gone forever, right? So the the requirements for these devices to be able to be reliably updated are uh, kind of on a different scale than you you would otherwise think about for, for example, updating a web browser. Mm -hmm. So you might decide that for a device that we're building today, that you actually do need a, you need storage that is sufficient to allow maybe dual partition so that you always are able to have a a bootable partition that allows your device to execute so that you can so that would be like the most reliable to do update we have actually got a update mechanism that allows allows you to do that but there are other um let's say gradients between that and just like yellow throughout the update if it fails and you know goodbye device um but uh but you need to figure out which update uh strategy is sufficiently reliable for your requirements because what we what we've got today is devices that maybe have an update mechanism for which the device de- developer doesn't have enough confidence in it to actually ship updates. So even for devices for which there's let's say a known vulnerability and it's potentially critical and even potentially actively being expo- exploited, the cost of delivering the update to those devices with let's say a one percent, a two percent, a five percent failure rate um, might be that they decide not to ship the update. Uh, broadly, because they can't tolerate the the cost of dealing with uh, a failure rate that is that high. So you need an update mechanism that is reliable enough to allow you to actually ship updates with confidence. And actually, when you get to the place where you can ship updates with confidence, you're not just shipping security updates. Uh, you're you're also enabling uh, the opportunity to ship updates for functionality and for potentially even new revenue st- introducing new revenue streams by allowing. The, the device developer to ship updates with new functionality that's paid because you're able to have confidence that it will it will deploy and you know kind of everyone wants to get to that that space where um, Tesla is where they can ship you a an, a software update and you've got new features in your car fantastic right um, 
most hardware manufacturers would love to be able to have a relationship with their customer that goes beyond um, the, the point where the product leaves the leaves the store, leaves the the uh, device manufacturer. In addition to the surveillance cameras being hijacked to form a botnet, there have been other cases where updates to devices over the air or otherwise have proven to be disastrous. Well, there have been events where like um, smart locks got um, bricked with an update and people got locked out of their Airbnbs. Um, I remember a very long time ago, an update failure that required uh, bank ATMs to be updated manually, <laughs> like all over the place, like thousands of ATMs need to be update, updated manually by a technician that had to go visit them. Um, we've seen cable modems that have vulnerabilities that nobody wants to update because the possibility of having all these uh, failures resulting in consumers without network access calling the provider to try and figure out how to get back to a, a working state is, is, is intolerable. And so we, we see those, those, those home routers and cable modems, you know, never updated. And so those, those vulnerabilities persist. So given this new threat landscape, Windows created a new company, one that is looking at a device agnostic framework as a solution. You can actually apply it to older devices as well. Um, it depends on the hardware constraints. Some devices have an update mechanism that could be leveraged in order to update the low-level components, but um, that's really specific to your implementation. We want to support folks where they are, right? We want to work with developer device developers, uh, leveraging the tech stack that they that they're using today um, instead of requiring them to do a forklift upgrade to move to a whole new operating system, right? So the the idea is that we've got these different uh, technology components that can be incorporated into your device. And you know, among those, we've got an update mechanism that you know is reliable, allows for failover, um, that the 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 updates are 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 signed and and validated. And you know, just what you'd hope to see from from a a more secure update mechanism. We've got a memory allocator with memory corruption mitigations, more memory corruption mitigations than than a lot of the default memory allocators to make it more difficult to exploit memory corruption issues. We've got a TLS stack that's implemented in a memory safe language because um, you know it'd be ideal to get to the point where you could say for your device that all of your network facing attack surface is implemented in a memory safe language and that could dramatically reduce the opportunity for memory corruption issues to potentially result in vulnerabilities or exploitable vulnerabilities for, uh, for, for your product. So what we were hoping to build is a uh, platform that allows developers to incorporate the security functionality or security sensitive functionality that they need in order to get to a robust implementation without having to uh, throw away their existing technology investment. So around 2007, I was sitting at Black Hat in the embedded security talk track and thinking how we're just talking to ourselves. We need to spread the word about device security to the greater world. And so I wrote When Gadgets Betray Us. Released in 2011, it was early. In fact, the term Internet of Things was just being touted at that time. So I wonder what's changed. We've known this for the last decade. What's different today? So there's definitely growing pressure, pressure both from uh, security researchers, from active attacks, from regulatory bodies as well. Um, and I, I think the, the, the enterprise has a lot of, let's say, power here as well in, in, in space to move their device manufacturers to a, a more reasonable security posture. Like when a, when a security officer or a security buyer um, or even a buyer that's that's halfway security savvy says, what is your update policy? 
Um, how long is this gonna, device going to be supported with security updates? Which components are you incorporating into this product? Like making an SBOM available um, is you know required for, for for selling into to government agencies, but it's also now just security savvy uh, enterprises are, are are asking for this. So it's going to become a requirement for some enterprises because the security questionnaire with two hundred questions on it is you know exhausting for for both the vendor but also for the 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 security organization to say like is this is this is this sufficient to our needs and how do I balance the other factors that we need to uh, consider while you know figuring out which of these security um, limitations we can tolerate with this with this vendor. We want we want to make it easy for folks to well reduce that security uh, friction in in sales, right? That that they can say something really um, comprehensive about their security implementation that is meaningful, right? Instead of like, well, we've got really smart people, you know, working hard to make this secure, which is really difficult to measure compared to all of our network facing attack surfaces implemented in a memory safe language. That like that that means something specific, right? It's measurable. Um, our update. Failure rate is this, and so that allows us to uh, enable the enterprise to deploy security updates uh, on a schedule that's appropriate for our, your organization. That those are those are things that I cared about as a CISO, <laughs> things that I cared about as a buyer, and that would make a difference for me when I'm trying to evaluate this these incredibly complex environments. That like the devices in in the enterprise are no longer like just the printer. Now it's like every room has many devices. Like every part of the organization is 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 dealing with multiple devices. Like even a conference room has like probably a free busy schedule scheduler on the wall, and then it's got you know like a a smart mic on the table, and it's got a uh, a screen which is a smart TV, and it's got a whatever they're using for conferencing. You know maybe even an Apple TV or something attached to that. The, the camera might even have um, be Wi-Fi enabled. It's just, it's it's a that, that must just for a conference room. Never mind like the HVAC or the physical access or um, any of the 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 growing number of devices that the security organization needs to think about in terms of the complexity. And for 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 an IT department, these are essentially black boxes, right? You may or may not have the capability to investigate this in your own organization, but like you shouldn't have to. It's a huge investment to try and do that security work to evaluate whether or not this is sufficient to your your security uh, tolerances, like. This is this is something that the device manufacturer should be able to uh, spell out and with confidence be able to describe what they're doing um, in their devices for security. I remember a few years ago talking to a company and they patiently explained to me that the solution could only work with a certain number of chipsets, not all of them. Window, she has a framework and it works with just about anything that's found in the device today. So we support a uh, a number of hardware platforms and operating systems today, but we are growing that over time. And, you know, importantly, we want to work with our customers. If, if we've got a customer who wants this functionality and their their platform's not supported yet, we will support your platform. We want to, we want to make, we want to make this accessible for, for our customers. So yeah, growing our ability to support more and more platforms is, is, is a part of the, uh, the challenge, but it's, it's, it's critical because this, this capability is required for pretty much every device out there. And what Thistle's doing, it's pretty clever, actually. Developers add some line of code before the build, and then they compile it. They put it out into the field, and then remotely, they can look at a dashboard and monitor the health of that device, and they can even push out updates if needed. Yeah, that's 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 essentially the story. Um, for update, it can also help you. Uh, we can the, our, our our developer tools allow you to partition the device. So you've got the, the failover uh, partition. You've got 
um, the the components that get compiled and deployed in the device, and we've got the backend services that allow you to manage your your devices or enable your enterprise customers to manage their devices. So, in some cases, this will actually introduce some basic security features. Yeah, those updates are are, are signed and validated. Of course, we want to make sure that that the update for your device is coming from where you expect it to be and from nowhere else. So, there's a difference between the commercial devices out there that are becoming smart and the operational devices that are out there in the world running our elevators and escalators. Would this solution framework work on PLCs and SCADA environments? Yeah, I mean, it, it, well, it, it depends. Like for, for all these devices, they can. Yeah, we can we can, we can can make it work with a, a, a lot of different kinds of uh, environments. I think one of the places to you know, really assist those folks is by working with the systems integrators, right, who are who building a lot of devices for these these whether it's, whether it's industrial manufacturing or it's power and water or telecom that they they build it for that specific um, organization or that specific let's say municipal water water department and uh, creating the tools that allow them to provide a solution that incorporates more robust security is um, a great way to deliver that capability. And I hear a lot from people that have been in the business for two to three decades, and they say they're seeing the same thing over and over. Any guesses as to why we're reinventing the wheel? Honestly, sometimes I think I'm doing the same like job everywhere I go. And for the last, you know, it's closing in on 30 years at this point, not actually 30 years. It's like almost 28 or I don't know what. So it's a very long time at any rate. Um, and uh, yeah, I see the, 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 the same security work that, that, was reliable and made sense and made the biggest difference um, in, in in the mid '90s is still the same work that makes sense and works in a, man, a meaningful way today. So things like highly reliable compartmentalization, um, separation of privilege, uh, separation between com- components, and reducing the communications channel down to minimum minimum access, so that you're you're able to uh, mitigate the the reach of an attacker from one component reaching the next component, whether that's systems on a network or it's um, uh, services within a backend um, operation, those kinds of strategies are still most effective. Um, then things like uh, making sure that you can update, like address any kind of security issues, because you will, you will identify security issues. You're not going to ship something like fully formed and perfect into the world. You're going to identify new things like, that, you, that you want to address over time and being able to do it reliably is, is a critical aspect. Um, things like uh, reducing functionality, <laughs> like there, there, there's there was a time where um, Microsoft would build, let's say, Office. Office is a, a fantastic example with like uh, every feature that anyone could ever want ever, and the set of people who were using any one feature was 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 really small. Um, except like maybe there's like, like a, a base set of features. Let's say it's twenty percent, and like most people are using that set of functionality, and then the eighty percent of of the implementation was leveraged by you know, really small numbers of people. Like two percent of the population is using this feature, and one percent of the population's using that feature. So they, they kind of felt like you couldn't get rid of anything because you know the people are using it. But um, but uh, it also meant that everybody had the attack surface from all that functionality, right? Uh, I don't want to pick on Microsoft or Office for, for, for this case because it's actually true in lots of places. So the strategy of uh, identifying the core functionality and making that available to everybody and then reducing the um, the 
uh, exposure from all that other functionality that is only used by small populations uh, of your customers. It, you can do that in a lot of different ways. Like for example, you can make it a, um, a, an additional module that you can load so that the, the default product doesn't ship with all that capability um, accessible, or you could make it um, only enabled through a, a configuration option, which means that because most of the population for 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 um for for these products, they use the product the way it ships with the default options, and few fewer people go in and, and actually change the the those options. Um, so if it's a configurable option, then that's going to dramatically reduce the uh, attacks or the 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 number of people who are or users who are are going to be vulnerable to a problem in that component. Um, so th those kinds of strategies are still what works today, that like um, adding more and more capability adds more and more complexity, adds more and more attack service and more opportunity for, for attackers. And it's also harder to manage from a security perspective. It's harder to, to do security work uh, consistently across you know, hugely complex code bases or hugely complex networks. And so if you accept that complexity is uh, uh, manageable, then simplicity ends up being, you know, your security partner that you want to um, identify ways to uh, reduce the opportunity for some minimally used component or service or server or um, system uh, to to be the reason that that the entire body is compromised. Windows background resulted in us having better security today. I wonder, what sort of common things is she still seeing? What carries over from the InfoSec that we had 20 years ago to the InfoSec that we're seeing today? I think there are opportunities for education, uh, for when we're teaching people how to code, teaching how, how to code uh, with security considerations in mind. But um, I, I do see progress as well. So a lot of, the, a lot of the, the, the memory corruption issues that we used to have to deal with are now reduced to uh, a smaller uh, set of the the new code coming out because not everyone's writing with these low level languages like C and C plus plus. More and more people are using memory safe languages, which is fantastic. More and more like applications being written in in Go or Swift or um, Ruby or Rust. My my big my my current favorite, right? Like so, being able to move to memory safe languages has dramatically reduced the opportunity for uh, memory corruption issues to be present in in new code. You know, not everyone can use these memory-safe languages for what they're building, but the fact that they're getting in popularity and that we have more and more of them is is massive. So I'd say we, we do have areas where we're making um, huge strides. That's not to say our work in security is done. I do think that there's a huge amount of work here to do, but I also think that it shouldn't be as hard for device developers to catch up the way it has been for um general purpose operating systems, because we can leverage some of the, like one of my favorite examples is to talk about cryptography. And once upon a time, cryptographic libraries were implemented by like every development environment. And um, we've come to, as an industry, mostly agree that what you should do is leverage a handful of existing cryptographic implementations that you should not roll your own. Don't go it alone. You should uh, leverage one of these well-tested, robust implementations that were implemented by people who understand cryptography and more importantly, understand how cryptographic implementations can fail <laughs> um, and uh, and use that and build the functionality that's specific to your product above that, you know, leveraging this, this, this robust implementation. And the same is actually true for security functionality. This is the model that we're, we're using at this technologies. We want people to leverage, let's say, an update mechanism that uh, is reliable and robust and um, 
does validation properly. We want folks to um, to be able to incorporate this kind of security functionality quickly and easily without having to build it themselves. Because not everybody has a security engineering organization that is equipped to build this kind of functionality to the degree, degree of resilience that your products are up against. And then additionally, even for organizations that have that security engineering organization uh, that, that is equipped to build code to this degree of resilience, they have a laundry list a mile long of things that they need to go do. So being able to uh, support them by doing the security plumbing and allowing them to focus on the security components that are specific to their project, their implementation, that really frees up their time and allows them to, to scale their, their investment. So for having built those security teams, I know those folks are in high demand and short supply, and there is an infinite amount of things that they need to go address. So we're hoping to support those organizations organizations as well by uh, reducing the, uh, the 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 work that they need to go do and also allowing them to deploy uh, that consistency, that security consistency across their products really quickly and um, allow them to focus their their attention on the, the security work that is more specific to their product. So with commercial devices, there must be a price point where the manufacturer or vendor simply decides it's not worth updating. For some devices, yeah. If we're talking about like a smart outlet, like maybe you're just like, well, that was 19 bucks. I'll go get another one. Maybe, right? Although I feel like that leads to, um, you know, obsolescence before the the. I mean, like when like when, when would your outlet outlet stop working otherwise, right? Like they, <laughs> that that there's no update for it. That might be like a reason for you to get it off your network, but it probably still functions in the, <laughs> functions as an outlet, right? So the ability to apply uh, security updates is is a pretty significant part of it. That's fine for your outlet. But if it's an MRI, you're probably not going to toss it just because um, because it's got security vulnerabilities and the manufacturer didn't didn't uh, supply you with an update. And it's true for, for cars. Like that, the, the car that I buy today and drive around for 10 years and then sell to somebody else who drives it around for 10 and sells it to somebody else who drives it around for 10, that car should still be as, as functional, I mean, with maintenance um, as as it is today. So, so we have to plan for devices to be functional given the capability of the the major systems on the, on the device beyond, let's say, uh, our ability to have confidence in the security of that device. Like, we're not going to throw away, uh, we shouldn't even throw away that smart outlet, right? But we, we're, we're not able to throw away all these other devices. So we're, we're, we're really uh, relying on device manufacturers, device developers to catch up with the security threats that are out there today. So what about something like a smart light bulb? It seems like it's kind of questionable gray area because we're used to changing our light bulbs and it's not really a big deal. But on the other hand, if it's hooked up to your home network, if it poses a security issue, then maybe there should be a way to update it. Maybe there should be a proper way to dispose of it. Oh my gosh. These are not like the set of things that we need to consider now are, are growing and growing, but like that smart led light bulb you probably paid 20 bucks for it too it's it's uh like you might be in the habit of or you might remember the days when you would throw away inc an incandescent light bulb when it when it stopped working but that was a 69 cent light bulb and this is like a 20 dollar uh led smart bulb that should continue to work for you know thousands tens of thousands of hours so this is a very good question. I mean, if you've got these disposable internet connected devices, then really we're handing our credentials over, aren't we? If you're able to reset it to factory settings and completely um, uh, throw away the data that was stored on it, 
you know, then that should feel more comfortable if <laughs> it's a pretty big, if it was implemented properly, right. Um, that, that reset might still leave traces of credentials and things, you know, like your, your Wi-Fi password uh, on the device that can be leveraged by somebody who gets their hands on it. So yeah, we absolutely uh, need to think about this for all the devices that uh, come in and out of our corporate networks in and out of our homes, even. In addition to sorting our garbage by trash, recyclable or compost, we got to remember to reset the device and get it back to a zero state. Reset it and also hope that their reset is uh, actually, is it is it a reset? Like I'll reload a new configuration or is it a wipe where I'll get rid of any data that, that was present on the device? I hope a wipe, but I fear it's, it's a reset. I'd really like to thank Windows Snyder for talking to me about her new company, Thistle Technologies. Really, it's the wild, wild west with connected devices present in our homes, in our place of work, and in the world at large in terms of security. We've discussed this before, and unfortunately, we'll probably have to discuss it again. But it is my hope that at least we're starting to make some progress in the security of all of our devices. Hey, if you're enjoying Error Code, tell a friend. I'm sure there are other people out there who like narrative information security podcasts. And I'd really like to hear from you. DM me at robertvamosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon and tell me what you like and even what you don't. And coming up, I've got some great episodes talking about infrastructure and the cybersecurity strategy that the Biden administration just released, and also a deep dive into what we mean by the electrical grid and how secure is it really. I hope you'll subscribe so you don't miss out. <laughs>